So welcome everybody today. Pardon my attire. I literally came straight from the airport after sitting on a plane. Two trips and I started last night at midnight. So I'm gonna go home and nap after this. But um, I don't even have my real Bible, I have my travel Bible with me because I literally came straight from the airport. But it's still a Bible and we're still in Exodus 20. Um, did it storm here? Were there really bad storms here? The flight was delayed like 20 minutes, which is why I was running like a little late today, and they said it was because of the storm, so I was wondering. And then it looks like the rain has kept some of our folks away, so be sure to shame them and ridicule them. <laughs> Say he made a flight back here in time. You couldn't even come from your office. But do it good naturedly because we love them. <laughs> I got it on video too, so they can't. Okay. Uh, Exodus 20. So we're going to spend two weeks on Exodus 20 because it's the hinge of the chapter. We've said it for 19 chapters now. All the events of the book of Exodus are culminating in Exodus chapter 20. It's the key. This is the key moment in Israel's history since the call of Abraham. All right? So it's one of those mountaintop passages, and it's easy to remember because it takes place on a mountaintop. <laughs> so it should be, that should just bookmark it in your mind. It's also the, pretty much the exact middle of the book of Exodus. Everything after this in the book is going to change. Everything, the whole tone of the book, the whole feel of Exodus, it's going to go from narrative to uh, ceremonial, legal, civil uh, worship regulations. Because Israel is becoming, they're moving from people who are slaves in Egypt to now the people who are being formed into the people of God. And so what God's doing is he's building them from the ground up. Their ancestors were migrant uh, shepherds, herdsmen. Uh, they, then their ancestors just before this time were slave laborers in Egypt. So they have no national identity. They have no covenant identity other than a vague memory that God made a promise to their ancestor named Abram, his son Isaac, and his son Jacob. And so if you haven't been with us on this whole journey, go online, hop on the podcast, subscribe, and you can catch up on your daily lunch break every day instead of just on Tuesday. You won't get the same lunch, but uh, you can see where we've come because I harp on this a lot because it's really important that Exodus was not written in a vacuum. Exodus 20 was not written in a vacuum. It was all written within the larger story of what we know of as the Pentateuch or the Torah. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those five books are the books of Moses. They tell a story that ranges over centuries and if we lose track of that, then what we end up doing is what a lot of Christians have done with Exodus 20. We pull it out of its context and we turn it into rules that we teach our children to follow and not teach them why. And so what we're going to see this week and next week is that these are the Ten Commandments. This is the famous Ten Commandments chapter. But these commandments were not given to you and I. They were given to covenant Israel. 
Israel under the Sinai Covenant. This is the beginning of the Sinai Covenant. And there is a major shift that happens when the Sinai Covenant comes to completion in Jesus the Messiah. And the New Covenant is inaugurated through his blood at Pentecost in the New Covenant. Last week we saw Pentecost in the Old Covenant, which is what this is what's going on right here when God came down on Mount Sinai in the form of fire and gives the law to his people. And then in the New Testament, book of Acts chapter 2, the New Covenant Pentecost, same day, same holiday, the same people of Israel were celebrating. And then God comes down once again in fire and gives his spirit to all of his people. And, and that's when the, the, the gospel really comes to its full fruition in the New Testament. And so if we don't take that into account, then what we end up doing is what a lot of uh, Christians and some denominations have done, which is we, we go back and we read the Old Testament. We try to say, okay, well, these are the laws we have to keep to go to heaven. Yeah. And it's not true. It's not the case. We've seen over the course of Exodus, Israel has not had to earn their salvation. They haven't had to work for their salvation. They are saved before they ever get these laws. They brought. They were brought out of Egypt before God ever issued a law. It's a. It's a. It's a stereotype. It's, it's bad theology to think that in the Old Testament they believed you had to work to earn your salvation by keeping the law, and in the New Testament we just live by grace. You blame Martin Luther for that one because he sure got that one. That's not the case. It's not what Jews believed. It's not what the Israelites believed. They were already saved in their eyes. Salvation wasn't going to heaven when you die. Salvation was God saving you from your plight. Saving you, delivering you. We've seen in the previous chapters how those words, literally those words, salvation, deliverance, Yasha, which is where we get the name Jesus, Yeshua. God uses those exact words to describe what he did for Israel by bringing them out of Egypt. They're already saved before they ever receive any laws. The laws are for them to live out the salvation that God has already given them. And the laws are the means by which they show that they are agreeing to taking upon themselves the identity of being God's people. The, the living under the covenant is their end of the bargain after God has already fulfilled his end. And so that's what the Ten Commandments primarily begin. They, they kick off this whole thing known as the covenant. Now, in the ancient world of this time period, 2nd millennium B.C., about 1400, 1200 B.C., somewhere in there, there were all kinds of ways that covenants would be made. And we've seen the ones that God made with Abraham where the animal pieces were split in two and he passed through the, the carcass parts and then the, that was signifying, you know, if I break my end of this bargain, maybe what happened to this animal happened to me and all of that way back in Genesis. But then later there would be another kind of covenant and it would be a suzerain vassal covenant or a vassal treaty or a, um, a king treaty or a land grant treaty or, or these different terms that, that uh, biblical scholars have used. But it's known throughout the ancient world that when a king rescued or redeemed or saved a, a lesser, the vassal, then they would enter into a covenant whereby the king would say, this is what I'm going to do. 
And in response, this is what you're going to do. And it was very elaborate, and it was very well-known form. They, they, it followed a certain format. Well, well the, the covenant at Sinai and the whole Torah itself, particularly the whole book of Deuteronomy, for the most part follows that same form. And uh, Google it if you want to. Google biblical, uh, Google vassal treaty or vassal covenant treaty um, or suzerain treaty. Any, I mean, this is not anything new. But what it was, what it was, was a king or ruler would just say, "Here's what I'm going to do if you're my loyal subjects. I have rescued you. I've saved you. This is what I require of you now. Live this way." And there would be this whole series of things that would be written down. They would even make two copies of the treaty, and one would go back with the king and be deposited in the temple of his god, and the other would stay with the people who was made, and it would be deposited in the temple of their god, so that each group's gods were witnesses to this agreement, to this covenant. So a lot of this stuff helped explain things, like why were there two tablets that God carved uh, these commandments on? Was it five on one and five on the other? No, it was two copies of the covenant. And they were both deposited in the Ark of the Covenant because that was not only the place of the king's God, who was God himself, but it was also where his people would worship. He was coming to dwell with Israel. God was dwelling in their midst. And so they had to be a holy people, not just ritually holy. This is where it's different from the ancient world. In the ancient world, there are all kinds of beliefs about being ritually pure, ritually clean, uh, making sure you've got all your I's dotted and your T's crossed so that the gods will do what you want them to do. And, and But it was it was ritual. It wasn't moral. I mean, you, as long as you gave your offerings, you could lie, cheat, steal, do all that stuff, and then you didn't get caught. It wasn't a big deal. The gods didn't care. They just wanted you to bring them food, to say the prayers to them, to do the incantations, and to win wars in their name. As long as you were doing those things, the gods were fine with whatever you were doing. So the laws in the ancient world were, were all like case law, like the Code of Hammurabi. It predates the writing of Torah, but it's, it's from around the same era. You know, there's all these laws. If, if this happens, then this should happen in response. If a person does this, then this will be the penalty. If a person does this, this will be the penalty. Those are called casuistic laws. They were case laws. They applied in a certain context. If this, then this. But there's another type of law, and it's pretty much unique to Israel, and it's the apodictic laws. And those were the not if then, but you shall not blank, and you shall blank. Like it, they were just straight commands. They were, there was no case law. It was just blatant. This is how you're going to live. And you don't see those very much outside of Israel. You definitely don't see them in a religious context. But in Israel, you do. And you see them at the very beginning of the covenant. Very beginning. God starts out. Because for, for Israel, one way that they're going to be different from their neighbors is not just in the rituals that they perform in the name of the God that they worship and the way that they worship. That's all, stuff, all that stuff seems really weird to us. But in, in, in the world of the ancient Near East, all that stuff was normal. Our type of worship would be weird to them. Like what? You go and sit and you, you talk to this God in your head and you sing songs with each other and, and you give a little bit of money, maybe a dollar or two, if it's a good day, and then you go home? How's that worship? What does that do for God? Those are the questions that they would have asked. They would have taken it for granted all of the things of ritual washings and uh, sacrificial offerings and um, you know, incantations and all of that. 
even to what you wore and how you approached and how many times you bowed and you know all of the stuff that we just look at as like, oh, that's weird. Unless you come from a Catholic background, then you're probably used to something like that. But for us, those of you know, especially Baptist, Charismatic, Protestants, it, you know, all of that stuff is just weird. It's almost like voodoo. It's like what? Why is there incense in here? I don't understand. Um, but the point is that Israel's culture of the day would not have had any issue with all of the stuff that's going to come after Exodus 20. All of the stuff about the laws and the rituals, and, and, and that wouldn't have been a big deal. This would have been the weird thing to them, is the way chapter 20 starts. This would have been the, the head scratcher. Because it begins with chapter 20, verse 1, then God spoke all these words. And, and literally in Hebrew, it's all these words. They're, they're not, Jews don't know these as the Ten Commandments. These are the Ten Words. Because in Hebrew, that's what it says. They're, they're, the, the Ten Utterances. The ten Statements. Um, and God speaks them out, starting in verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Do not have other gods besides me, or you shall not have any other gods before me. So the first command right off the bat is no gods in my presence. Literally that before me is in Hebrew it's to my face is what the literal phrase and it doesn't mean put me first and then you can worship these other gods on the side. Just don't put any before me. That's not, in English it may sound that way but that's not what the Hebrew says. The Hebrew before me means in my presence and God's presence is everywhere. So that means you shall have no other gods, period. He's making it absolutely clear. There is only one God. He is the one to be worshipped, and you shall not worship any other gods. In the ancient world, this would have done things like Baal, Asherah, Chemosh, Moloch, uh, Ra, Osiris, Horus, any of those other gods from all of the surrounding cultures. But in our day, our gods have been expanded. You know, you go, I go to India every year and do some teaching, and over there, this literally means other gods, like Shiva and Brahma and Vishnu and Krishna. And, I mean, they, they literally, there are many other gods. There are 330 million gods in the Hindu pantheon. So literally, you can worship whatever god you want. But in Western cultures, the gods are different. They're the gods of security. They're the gods of prosperity. They're the gods of finances. They're the gods of convenience. They're the gods of in the blank. The point that the first commandment's making above all others is no other gods. Nothing else will command your worship. Only God alone. And then the second one, it goes on to say, uh, do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. You must not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the father's sin to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Notice how I link love me and keep my commandments. In the Hebrew Bible and in the New Testament, that's two sides of the same coin. You can't love God without keeping his commandments. Now, in the New Testament, those commandments look different. But it's still the same concept. Anybody that says, I love God, and doesn't keep his commandments, the New Testament, 1 John, flat out says that person's a liar. 
Because how you'll know that they're a liar. If they say, I love God, and they walk in darkness, they are a liar. It's very specific, First John. Read through it sometime. It's, it's, it's eye-opening. But in this section, um, what God's prohibiting here for his people, the second thing is the second part of worshiping other gods, which was idolatry. Now, idolatry in the ancient world was you would take something, an item, and it would be crafted, the work of a craftsman, an artisan, uh, a metal worker or something, but that thing would be imbued with the essence of whatever god you were worshiping. And you would take that thing and you would put it in the temple or in the shrine or in the sanctuary or whatever it was on the high place or wherever you would put it there and you would bow down to it. You would show it the respect that you felt towards that God because by doing it, you were showing that respect to the God. It was the sense that they, they didn't believe that the idol was the God in the sense that like if you throw the idol in the trash, then the God's just gone. They knew enough to know, okay, this obviously God is, you know, Baal is bigger than this little Baal statue. But this idol is a very real connection to the God that I worship. And how I treat this idol and how I act to this idol is a reflection of what I believe and how I worship the God. So if I care for this idol and show it affection and show it honor and show it respect, then that is me doing that, showing that to the God, and that will earn the favor of that God, and then the God will do what I want the God to do, or he'll answer my prayers. And so idolatry was this much more uh, elaborate system than just, oh, here's a rock, I'm going to bow down to it, I'm going to worship it, because it's magical. It wasn't like that, it was... It was, I'm going to worship this God, but I want to do it in a way that I control. I want to worship in a way that I can set it up. I can look at it. I can touch it. I can move it around. I can bring it gifts. I can show my affection. I, I have something tangible. I can put it in my pocket. I can take it with me. All of these marks of control, that was expressed through idolatry. And you see it, you know, again, you see it around the world today. You see it even, even it, it creeps into the people of God, as it always has. You know, people that have just, whether it's like a little cross that they keep in their pocket that, that they'll freak out if they don't have it. Or, you know, a little, even with the Bible sometimes, like I, somebody was talking about how, you know, they would never let the Bible touch the ground. Or it would always be above any other book in the house. Or, or all of these other things. And it's like, that's, it, it can be disguised as reverence. But when it moves from showing respect to God, to manipulating an object in order to show that respect, then you're starting to get into some dicey territory because it's starting to be similar to what people in the ancient world believe. The whole bottom line of it is being able to manipulate the supernatural. That's the difference between magic and religion, magic and worship. Right? Magic is I want to if I do something or say something in the right way with enough skill the right words, then the result that I want will happen. And, and religion, faith in God is, I'm not in control, and I'm not even going to pretend that I'm what I want. But I know that you know a lot more, and you may want something different, and so if what I want is not what you want, then by all means, let what you want happen. That's the difference. And again, this is where you start to see these forms of idolatry. The biggest example of it, I've 
I'm very openly vocal about it, is in the prosperity gospel, the health and wealth message. It is blatant idolatry, manipulating God to get what you want, to get the blessing, to get the, you know, my mansion, to get my car, to get my whatever. Oh, you're sick? Oh, you didn't pray with enough faith. That's why God didn't heal you. If you only believe, if you'd only sow your seed of faith into my ministry, God will give it back to you a hundredfold. That is garbage from the pits of hell. Don't ever be taken in by it. And don't let your friends or your family be taken in by it. Because it's absolutely garbage. Instead, what Scripture calls God's people to is saying, Lord, you hold the future. I can't manipulate you. I can't get you to do what I want can only come before you and ask. And then I can live my life based on your commandments regardless of how much of a blessing I'll receive in return. I'm going to live my life this way because it's what you want me to be. Not so that I can get my whatever, the point, $60 million jet or whatever it is. So, but so the second, the first two commandments, they're tied together, and they're really important because Israel had come out of an idolatrous culture, and they were going to go into a land filled with an idolatrous culture. And so God is saying, you're not going to be like those people, because I've called you out, I've called you to be holy. Now there's a passage, there's a section in here that, that people get hung up on because it uses some it uses Hebrew figure of speech. There are two, there's a combination of two figures of speech going on here. In Hebrew, in the Old Testament language, the language of love and hate is used to show priority. All right? So there's figures of speech that are well known, and you can see it throughout when, when it says, blank I have loved and blank I hate, or you shall love blank and you shall hate blank. That doesn't mean what that phrase in English means. If you look at how it's used in the Hebrew Bible, if you look at Hebrew grammar, vocabulary, and syntax, and all that stuff, what you see is love-hate language is the language of priority. This is what Jesus is talking about when he says, anybody that will be my disciple, you've got to hate your mother and father. He didn't literally mean to hate them. He was using well-known, perfectly normal, biblical stock phrase to describe priority. The best way, at least I, that I know, to explain it is saying, to paraphrase, if anyone would be my disciple, then the love that they must have for me should make the love that they have for their parents look like it was hate in comparison. That's kind of how you unpack that phrase. So if you're to say, when God says in the Old Testament, Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. Well, we know from Genesis, when you were with us, those of you that were with us, we know he loved Esau. He didn't hate Esau. He blessed Esau. He said he'd bless Esau. But he chose Jacob for the purpose of extending covenant promises. He chose Jacob's line as the line through which he was going to work. It was a language of preference and purpose, not I love Esau, uh, Jacob and I hate Esau. That's not what God, that's not what love-hate language in the Bible is used in this way. That's not what it means. So when God's saying, um, Oh, the second. Let me let me add the second part into that as well. The other contrast is with numbers. When you want to contrast something like Proverbs has this, I think you go through it. It's like you know, 
six things the Lord hates, seven that he despises, or something like that. Or, it, you know, Saul has killed his thousands, uh, David is tens of thousands, or, or whatever the phrases are like that. Numbers, when they're used, again, often show comparison or, or, or to show how it is in this. Um, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the father's sin to the third and fourth generations. So third and fourth. That's like uh, uh, usually most families, third and fourth generations are about the full extent of a family that will be alive at the time. Right? Like it's, it's rare to have five generations of family members all alive at once. But third and fourth generation, you know, baby and a great-grandparent, that's not so common. So you've got like third and fourth generation. And then uh, the third and fourth generation, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. So the comparison is God is saying his, his, his anger or his punishment for a family or for a people that is not loving him, if it's extended to the third and the fourth generation, his love and his faithfulness is extended to a thousand generations. This is a figure of speech. It's a it's it's a metaphor. It's an image. It's not saying this is this is where people start to get all into this. Oh, there's generational sin in my family, and my great grandfather was like a mason, so I got to go around the house and pray over every room and all this kind of stuff. And it's not what's going on here. It's later in Ezekiel, God will say flat out, I don't punish the son for the father's sins. And I don't bless the son for the father's holiness. Each person will give an account for their own sins. Look at Ezekiel. I think it's chapter 18 and again in chapter 20-something. I'm, I'm running on no sleep, so just good. <laughs> um, regardless, though, that what's being said in this is God's making a comparison. To those, who, to those who put me first, those who love me, then I will show my faithfulness beyond measure. Thousand generations. I don't even know how many generations there have been in human history, but a thousand is like a good chunk of human history. Um, and he's saying, but those who despise me, those who put me, those who make me either have other gods before me or try to manipulate me through that idolatry, those who are disobedient to me, then I will punish them. This is part of the covenant God is making. This is part of the agreement. And so it's very sol solemn, and God's putting it right up front first two commandments and then the third one and this is the last one we'll get to today the third one is do not misuse the name of the Lord your God because the Lord will punish anyone who misuses his name uh, and I what does NIV say I, I'm you reading Holman Christian what does NIV I know half of you in here are reading NIV does NIV say misuse in vain God in vain Vain, King James, I know does vain, New King James probably. Um, the, tr the traditional is you shall not take the Lord, the name of the Lord your God in vain. Literally what it says in Hebrew is you shall not lift up or bear or to hold up. You shall not lift up the name of Yahweh in emptiness or in vanity. That's where vain comes from. Or in futility or in meaninglessness. Flippantly. Is a good uh, way of saying it. You shall not use the name of Yahweh lightly. All right? So this commandment kind of gets 
again, in the retelling and the retelling and teaching the children and doing numbering on your fingers and all that kind of stuff, this becomes, don't say, oh my God. One, God is not God's name. Yahweh is God's name. So definitely don't say, oh my Yahweh, uh, if you don't really mean it. <laughs> but two, if you do mean it, mean it. Like, like use God's name, just mean it. The Psalms are filled with people crying out, oh Yahweh, which is translated in English, oh Lord. It's not saying, this, this, this began a tradition that culminated before the time of Jesus, whereby some pious Jews would not even say the name Yahweh. They would say Adonai, which is Lord. That's why in your English Bibles, to keep that tradition, every time Yahweh is found, they'll translate it Lord, but in all capitals. But that's not what this is talking about. This passage is saying God has revealed himself to Israel, and the name of a deity, the name of a deity was the essence of that deity. The name of a person is the essence of that person. That's why when people change in the Bible and have to undergo these character changes, a lot of times they get a new name. Your name was your identity. It's not like in America, you know, names today don't really have a lot of meaning. Like, oh, I'm going to name the, you know, whatever, because it sounds pretty. Or, oh, this is my grandfather's name. Or, oh, this name. But the names itself don't have the same meaning that other cultures do, and, and particularly biblical cultures. So what God's saying to Israel is, I'm, I've revealed myself to you by name. Egyptian gods rarely did that. There are Egyptian incantation texts where a god would keep one of their true names a secret and go by other names. Because if you was believed, if you could say the name of the god correctly, pronounce it at the right time in the right incantation, that that god would be bound to do what you were seeking the god to do. So there are all these stories about Egyptian gods hiding their name from, from people seeking them. In, in ancient Near East cultures, the name of the god was really important. And so what, what God's telling his people in here is, my name's not like other gods' names. My name is my essence. It's who I am. So if it passes your lips, don't do it lightly. Particularly when in, in, in the world of the Bible, you would swear oaths. You would say, I swear on the, you know, by the moon and the stars, and I swear by this God and that God. Da, 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 da. And, and the, the bigger the thing you swore by, the more you had to keep your promise. So if you really, you know, to, to, to really swear by something and, and let everybody know that you meant it, you would swear by the name of your God. And so what God's doing in this is he's telling his people, don't use my name lightly. Don't take me for granted. Don't use my name flippantly. Don't think that I'm another God that can be manipulated, that I'm another God that could be sweet-talked or that could be commanded or controlled just because you know my name or just because you've been the privilege to know who I am, which is his name, by the way, I am. So God's instilling in his people, just in these first three commandments, he's instilling in him the utter difference between him and and all of the other concepts of God that they have ever known in their entire lives. He's grounding them in, I am different than everything you've ever known. And so before we get to any of the worship, before we get to any of the how you should treat each other, before we get to any of the, the things dealing with priests and sacrifices and laws and 
you know, not murdering each other and not committing adultery and you know, not taking property from one another and how you should dress and how you should punish crimes and how you should treat these fallen human institutions that you are born into the midst of that God ultimately wants to redeem. Before we get to any of that, what God's saying is, you have no idea who I truly am. And I want you to get a glimpse of it. And so here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to start by showing you who I'm not. I'm not these other gods. And God's going to unfold who he is. And he's going to establish their whole society around him and his holiness, which then will extend to them as they walk in obedience to him. That holiness will extend to them because, like we saw in the previous chapters, their calling was to be a kingdom of priests to the nations. The way that a holy God would reach an unholy world is by taking one of those unholy peoples, drawing them to himself, and instilling his holiness in them so that then that would spread to the world and draw the nations to himself. That's the promise that he made to Abraham all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. So, we'll look at the other commandments next week. We're out of time. I need a nap. You guys need to get back to work. So thanks for coming and have a great week.